0: Uh, This morning, we're in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. We've been journeying through John. We're almost to the end. And today, my aim is for us to see Jesus, even while he's in his sufferings, we see Jesus reigning in authority. So we're looking at the first 16 verses of chapter 19 this morning. The Apostle John writes, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He entered in his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, then you're not, a, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's let's pray. Father, I can't imagine this scene unfolding um, from your perspective, Uh, watching the very people you created, the people that you um, put your image in, that they bear your likeness, shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, Father, I pray that we would... uh, be able to see that we're not much different from those men yelling from the crowd. So I pray that we would be able to, to see, our, see our true selves this morning, how we have rebelled from you, that we also want to be God, that we don't want to have a king, and that we all want to be um, our, our own king. So what I pray that you would give us eyes to see these truths this morning Help me, Lord, to preach a, a true and faithful gospel. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this passage and we see all the deliberation taking place, if, if you were a visitor, just someone, you know, just an innocent bystander, I think you might be a little bit confused on who's actually in charge. Like, who's the boss of this operation? There are moments where it looks like that the Jews are in charge. On the day of preparation, Pilate brings Jesus out to the Jews and says, Behold your king. And the Jews tell Pilate, Away with him, away with him. They're telling Pilate what to do. So Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified to the Jews. But the Jews cannot be the ones in control. I mean, Rome has established many reminders for the Jews to remind them that they're the ones not in charge. For example, the Jews had to pay taxes to Rome. Everyone knows that paying taxes ultimately shows who's in charge. And there are Roman soldiers stationed all throughout Israel to remind them that they're not in charge. Then the fact that they're pleading their case to Pilate for the death of Jesus shows us that the Jews are not the ones in control. Well, maybe it's other Jews. Maybe it's the religious leaders like Caiaphas, the chief priests. Maybe they're ones in control. I mean, directly after the Jews tell Pilate of their desire for the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate says to the Jews, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So maybe they're in control. But we spoke last week of how Rome had limited the authority of these religious leaders. Even though the Torah instructed the Israelites to stone certain criminals to death, they had to get permission from Rome before they could put anyone to death. So it doesn't appear that these religious leaders, the chief priests, were the ones with authority. Well, maybe it's Caesar himself. I mean, he is the most powerful man in the entire world. But he's all the way back in Rome. I mean, how much power control could he really have? There are a ton of decisions we see being made without his input. So it doesn't appear that Caesar is in control of this scene either. So I guess the obvious character in our passage who appears to be in control is Pilate. I mean, Pilate is the governor of all of Judea. It seems like every important decision has to go through him. So it seems like he is the one in authority. But it sure seemed like he acquiesced his authority to everyone else. For someone in charge, he asked permission an awful lot. In Matthew's account of the trial, it says, When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Well, this leaves us with one man left in our passage who I believe the author John is trying to show us that this man, Jesus from Nazareth, is actually the one in control of every single detail. He's the one in charge. He is the boss. And I want us to see from this passage that Jesus shows that he has authority over two things. First, the law. Second, he has authority over man. So let's first look at how he has authority over the law. So in verse 1, we see how Pilate took Jesus out and he flogged him. The Romans had three types of floggings. The first type was a good beating. It was given for smaller offenses, such as being a troublemaker usually followed with a severe warning. The second type of flogging was a more brutal flogging to which criminals were subjected whose offenses were more serious. And then the third type of flogging was the most terrible form of this punishment. Oftentimes it was the precursor to further punishments such as a crucifixion. Roman flogging was no joke. Your flesh was stripped away and what remained bled and oozed with bones showing. Now, in the present instance, the flogging of verse 1 seems like the least severe form, which Pilate probably intended for it just to appease the Jews, like, hey, I'm going to beat Jesus and teach him a lesson. You could say maybe he roughed him up a bit. But after he was sentenced to be crucified, Jesus was flogged again. And this time, it was probably the most severe form Matthew's gospel says, having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. So this scourging was probably this third type of flogging. This would probably explain why Jesus wasn't strong enough to carry his own cross. He had to have help. Then in verse 2, in addition to Jesus receiving the flogging, we also see that the soldiers gave Jesus this unique crown. One scholar writes this, This crown of thorns consisted of some branches twisted together from the long spikes from probably the date palm, shaped into a mock crown, the radiant corona, which adorns rulers' heads on many coins of Jesus' time. These thorns, which could be up to 12 inches long, could sink into the victim's skull, resulting in considerable pain, impossible distortion. So we're not talking about a thorn from, a, uh, from like a rose bush just gently resting on top of Jesus' head. This is talking about thorns that could cause distortion to the face, and this was all done in good sport. And they continued to mock him by giving him this purple robe. This was probably a military cloak. It was used as a jest, as like a royal garment. So they have dressed Jesus up to look like this king. They began to mock, ridicule him, But I don't want us to miss this. Where did all of this take place? Where was Jesus when he took the flogging and the mockery? Look down at verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus took this flogging inside the four walls of Pilate's palace. But do you remember, for those of you who were here last week, what John wrote about Caiaphas and the other religious leaders when they brought Jesus to Pilate? Do you remember this? Back in John 18, verse 28. You can look back there. I think it's on screen. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. This is Pilate's house. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Jesus, we're picking up in chapter 19, Jesus is in the governor's headquarters, but the other religious leaders would not enter into the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. Jesus is currently with Pilate, and somehow Jesus continues to be the spotless Passover lamb. John is showing us that this most holy man in all of Israel, the high priest Caiaphas. Okay, if somebody's going to say, who's the most holy man uh, in Israel? Uh, they would say Caiaphas, of course. Maybe his father Annas. But they do not have the authority over the law. It would make them unclean if Caiaphas were to walk into the home of a Gentile. But it does not make the great high priest unclean. So this is amazing what John's doing here. The authors of Hebrews um, uh, gives us this great insight on Jesus being this ultimate high priest and how he has authority over the law. In Hebrews 7, starting in verse 26, we read this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 11, listen to this description. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for the sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Okay, so let me tie this together. Under the old covenant, when you were unclean, you had to go outside the camp. Everything outside the camp was considered unclean, but here we see Jesus outside the gates, which would make him unclean, and yet Hebrews 7 calls him holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is the high priest who has authority over the law. We see this in other places in the gospel. For example, if you have leprosy, you were considered unclean. You'd have to announce to others that you were unclean so they wouldn't get too close to you. So touching a leper would then make you unclean. You'd have to go outside the camp for a period of time, and then you'd have to go to the priest and make a sacrifice so that he could deem you as you know, clean again. But in Matthew chapter 8... Some, we see something marvelous. This is amazing. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, when he, this is Jesus, when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, I just want you to think about this. We, we, you know, we've gone through almost all of John, we've seen several healings in John's gospel. We saw one. Where um, he was in one town, and this father comes and says, hey, can you heal my child? He's sick. And Jesus doesn't even go to that town. He says, just go. Your child is well. So Jesus, we've seen you know, different modes, means of him healing others. Um, there's the paralytic man uh, who was by the pool. He you know, spoke to him, told him to just get up. He gets up and walks. But I want you to notice this in verse 3. Here's this leper who's unclean. Jesus is this holy, righteous man. Verse 3, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This is amazing. Jesus doesn't have to touch anyone to heal them. But I love that he touches the leper who, you got to imagine, felt like you know he was untouchable. No, no one would get near me. No, no one wants anything to do with me. I'm unclean. And here, this holy, righteous man touches me. But I want you to notice this. Jesus could touch someone who was unclean. So if this was Caiaphas, if Caiaphas would have touched the leper then Caiaphas would have also been unclean. But Jesus touches someone who's unclean, and instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the unclean becomes clean. You see that? This is amazing. I mean, that is someone who has authority over the law. He is unique. He's different from all others. So Jesus could walk right into Pilate's headquarters as a Jew As our spotless lamb and walk out and still be considered clean under Jewish law. Jesus has authority over the law. Next, we see from John 19 that Jesus has authority over man. In Acts 22, I'm going to take a tangent to get back to this text. But in Acts 22, verse 30, so Paul's out on his missionary journeys being persecuted and in chapter twenty-two, verse thirty it says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was be- Paul, why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down to set before him, set before them. Continue in chapter twenty-three. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, maybe some of you have quick tongues like this, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood um, by... Said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul unknowingly spoke out against the high priest. But when he was told that he had spoken out against um, this high priest, Paul quickly repents. Even though Paul was accurate in what he said, He knew that he he should not speak evil to one of the rulers of his own people. Paul paints a great picture of what submission to authority should look like. I think our culture could learn a great deal from Paul in Acts 23. Our culture has really low view of people in authority. I mean, my goodness, just look at all the tax um, political figures over the last couple years. Look at all the attacks on police officers over the past few years. Um, God has put these people in position, and we should um, show respect. I was encouraged a, a few weeks ago by um, country music star Luke Bryan. I'm, I'm not a country music guy, but I know who Luke Bryan is. Um, this was right after Hurricane um, Ian had gone through Florida and created so much damage um Luke Bryan, he, he um, took a ton of heat for bringing Governor DeSantis, uh, Florida's governor, up on the stage. And Bryan finally um, spoke out on social media, and he said this. He said, I understand Governor DeSantis is a very polarizing figure, but I grew up in a country where if a governor asks you if they can come and raise awareness to help victims of a natural disaster, you help I've generally stayed out of politics throughout my career. I knew people would chatter about this, but for me, it's more important piece was if I'm going to come back there in a few weeks after a large portion of people have been affected by a natural disaster in a state where people have been so good to me, then this felt right. I love his response. He he may or may not agree with the policies of Governor DeSantis. He actually doesn't say, and I, I don't really know. But he respected the authority of the position that Desantis is in and allowed Desantis to come on stage. We are called by God to show respect, to even pray for those who have authority over us. Last week in chapter 18, Jesus is being interrogated by Annas. So this is the father of Caiaphas, former high priest. Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him. He told him that he had been speaking openly to the world. Many have heard him teach. Basically saying, you know, why are you, why are you asking me what I taught? Why don't you just go ask them? After he said this, one of the officers of the high priest struck Jesus with his hand and said, is this how you answer the high priest? I mean, this sounds like the exact same scene I just read from Acts 23. Paul with the high priest, Paul speaks out. He's hit. You know, how dare you speak out against the high priest? Jesus, high priest, former high priest Annas speaks out. He's hit. But what's missing from John 18 that we clearly saw from Acts 23? This is important, don't miss this. What's the difference? The difference is Jesus does not repent. Jesus clearly, clearly speaks out against a ruler of his people. In Acts 23, Paul quotes from Exodus that it would be sinful to speak out, speak evil against one of your rulers. Now, if Jesus speaks out against the high priest, then Jesus would have sinned and we would be in a world of mess. So your salvation is at stake this morning. Why is what Jesus did different from what Paul did. Why did Paul repent and Jesus did nothing? Because Paul was under the authority of the high priest and Jesus was not. We just read where Jesus is the ultimate high priest in Hebrews. And as the high priest, he should be the one repenting for speaking to Jesus. He is the one speaking evil against the ruler of his people. Jesus informs the disciples of this truth in the Great Commission. You remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28? At the end of it, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And let me go and state the obvious here. To have authority in heaven and on earth, that's a whole lot of authority, isn't it? So when Pilate says to Jesus, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Imagine Jesus hearing this maybe a little grin on his face. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Even though Jesus was bound by Pilate, even though he was being mocked, Jesus was the one in complete control of this entire situation. Pilate was just a part of God's sovereign hidden will. I love how Acts chapter four describes the behind the scenes of the crucifixion. Listen to Acts 4, starting in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus is allowing to happen what he has planned would happen. Pilate, at this point, is pretty livid with Jesus. He says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? While on one level, I guess this is true, on a deeper, much more profound level, it's not true at all. And I love how we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility on display here in Acts chapter 4. Just as it seemed like, from our perspective, that Jesus' plan was about to fall apart, I'm sure that's what the disciples were thinking, you know, what do we do? We've been doing this for three years. I thought we were doing something great. I, I just don't get it. it. looks like everything's falling apart. Acts chapter 4 lets the reader behind the curtain to see that God had every detail planned out, including all the suffering, all the mockery that Christ would endure. What seemed like weakness from Jesus was actually his hand writing out the script, fulfilling what had been written from different Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. I mean, think of Isaiah 53 in light of John's passage. Isaiah 53 verse seven says, he was oppressed. So this is several hundred years before Jesus came to earth. And this is a prophecy about this one who was coming. He was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You know, as I'm reading John's account, I just want Jesus like, to defend himself. I want him just, you know, stand up. Come on, Jesus. Tell him who you are. Send down legions of angels. But when you reflect on Isaiah 53... Then Jesus not opening his mouth in John 19 makes perfect sense. Jesus is this lamb being led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There's so much irony in this passage. To where once you step back from the passage, it's pretty obvious what Jesus is doing here. I mean, think of all the irony. This is the special day of preparation for the Passover week. This is where the Passover lamb would be prepared and celebrated. What's happening with Jesus here? He is being prepared as this Passover lamb for true Israel. So he's willingly allowing himself to be this. I mean, this is why he came. The Jews are preparing the greatest Passover lamb that Israel has ever had. Then we have the Jews saying, We have no king. I mean, how ironic! They had King Herod, which you know, John's Gospel leaves just Herod out of this scene. So they say they have no king. They have you know they have Herod, but let's be honest. Everyone knew that Herod was just this puppet king. He wasn't a true he wasn't a true Jew. So the Jews didn't really respect him as their king. No one took him that seriously. The real king was Caesar. But Caesar wasn't their true king. Their true king as Jews was this king in heaven who they're about to crucify. I mean, how ironic. They have no king, but the king that they really have, they're about to send out to crucify. Which leads us to a good question. So who is to blame for the crucifixion? We see the Jews in verse 6 crying out, Crucify him, crucify him. Verse 16, we Read where Pilate delivers Jesus over to them to be crucified, so it seems that the Jews are to blame for Jesus dying on the cross. This may even explain why there's been so much hostility towards the Jews over the past 2,000 years. Maybe God is punishing them for what they did to his son. People think that. Or maybe it was the Roman soldiers to blame. They were the ones who literally nailed Jesus to the cross. But they were just doing their job, Pilate was the one who instructed them. They listened to Pilate, Pilate alone. So maybe it was Pilate. He was the one who delivered Jesus over. So maybe it was Pilate. Or just maybe, maybe it was us. Maybe you, maybe I, it's us. We're the ones to blame for Jesus dying on the cross. It was our sin that led him to leave his throne To come to earth and die on the cross. Or maybe Jesus was to blame for the cross. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus willingly went to the cross. Um, We saw few weeks ago where right before he was arrested, uh, Jesus said he could have called down legions of angels to, to stop all of this, but he willingly goes. In some sense, it was the Jews who continued to push for the crucifixion. It was Pilate that authorized the crucifixion. It was a couple of soldiers who literally nailed Jesus to the cross. It was your sin and my sin that led Jesus to the cross. But if you remember in John's gospel, he said this over and over no one's taking his life. The good shepherd willingly laid down his life for his sheep. So Jesus has authority over the law, he has authority over man. And because he has authority, then we know that the mission cannot be stopped, he is in control. And as followers of Christ, we need to be reminded that we stand victorious today. Do you feel that way? Do you believe that truth? The mission was not being aborted. We see from John 19 where Jesus has authority over the law and over mankind. Next week, spoil alert, we'll see that Jesus has authority over death, that he doesn't stay in the tomb He raises from the dead. He's alive today, still reigning, still in control, still has authority. If Jesus is over the law, if Jesus is over all mankind, then what do these truths matter for us today? Well, if he's over the law, then the demands of the law do not have ultimate authority over you. This is huge. This is huge huge on your day-to-day life. Jesus could pay what the law demanded, which was perfection, so that you were not bound to that law. This means that you don't have to live anxiously or being depressed about your failures or your situation. Once you are in Christ, once you have this union with him, then the law looks at you as being perfect and blameless, which should lead you to live a life full of joy. This is why theology matters. Jesus having authority over man means that nothing can happen to you that he doesn't allow to happen to you. All the suffering you face from others, all the trials you go through, Christ has authority over every single detail, but he doesn't promise to remove these difficulties just as he did it in his own life. But rather, what he does, as a good shepherd does, He leads you through these valleys. So you're not going through them alone. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So embrace Jesus today, the one who has authority over the law and the one who has authority over man. Let's pray as we um, have the band come back to lead us. Father, this morning I pray that we would see the beauty of you having authority over the law and you having authority over all mankind. This teaches us that there's no accidents, there's no There's no trial that we won't go through that you aren't there with us. There's no suffering that we face that you haven't faced something similar. It's what makes you the better high priest, that you can sympathize with us, that you know what pain feels like. You know what suffering feels like, and so Lord, I pray that we would cling to you when we suffer when we hurt. May we realize that we have the great high priest who is over all, that everything is underneath your feet, that you reign supreme. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.